When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the southernmost point of dawn to the lands of always winter, and what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk of Catnapsock. Just you and me here today, talking all things world of ice and fire. We have a returning segment today coming up. Sir Thomas Atoll, Thomas Risling, and his ruminations from the realm. Your calls, your questions on the other side of the break. Right now, Man, they got me. They got me again. Who? Who got me? He said dramatically into the microphone. Yeah, the fine people at Funko. You Funko Pops. I had stopped collecting Funko Pops. I love Funko Pops. I don't take them out of the packaging much. I think I just really love the packaging. It's like, there's a character I love. It it looks like a, a little ball with eyes. But the words are on the the box that say the character's name that I love. And I fall for it every time. But for financial reasons, for sanity reasons, for storage reasons, I ran out of uh, the desire to get Funko Pops. And I didn't get uh, any new Game of Thrones Pops going into Season 7. And, of course, I knew some were going to be coming in Season 8. Uh, I was like, yeah, can I, can I, can I hold off on it? I've been holding off on the Star Wars, Star Wars Funko Pops, some little pro wrestling Funko Pops. Every now and then, we'll like, ooh, should I, should I get it? Should I get it? No, 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 I'm not. And it's, it's been like two years. The only new Star Wars ones I got were given to me at a, at a screening event. Like that's, you know, what are you gonna do when you're handed a Kylo Ren, Rise of Skywalker Funko Pop? You're gonna be like, no, no, you can take it. But unfortunately, it goes straight into a storage box. Don't even have room to display them. That's where I've been. That's where I've been. Well, and I don't know when this came out. I don't know. The other day I was walking around a mall. Not just any mall. The mall that I I worked at at about uh, for about 12 years of my 17-year previous career. Actually, more about 13 years of those 17 years. Checking up on some old friends. Picking up something. At a suit shop that I uh, know there, know the owner there. You've got one of those nice little mall massages. You know, you go in, you sit in a chair. Someone, some stranger rubs you for 20 minutes and you pay the money. Like, you know, I did that. So I was strolling around, heading back to my car. And I passed one of those stores. Not, uh, there's the Hot Topic. There's GameStop. They all have Funko Pops. Now I passed that that, uh, boxed lunch store. Not a sponsor, but I'll shout them out. They got good stuff. I've bought some stuff from them before, including Funko Pops, but that was years ago, a different time in my life. I, you know, I, I, I swing by, I was swinging by, and I was like, yeah, you know, you know, I'm here. Let me just swing in and let me just see. Let me just see if there's some Star Wars merchandise that I like. Maybe a 
maybe a wicket coffee mug that I need or something like that, you know, and I go around, I go around. They don't have a ton of Game of Thrones stuff out right now for understandable reasons. The show's in our rearview mirror. And I see it. two-pack, a, a, a cinematic scene Funko Pop kind of thing. Daenerys Targaryen and Jorah Mormont, side by side, flames around them. Soot and ash on their face, some blood on their face, swords drawn. It's the last stand of Jorah Mormont Funko Pop. God damn it. I had to get it. So I got it. I definitely got it. I have to get it because of what that moment meant for me as a fan. I had to get it because of what Sir Jorah Mormont, as played by Ian Glenn, meant to me over eight years of that show. Books as well. But for the most part right now, I do need to focus on the show. I think Jorah Mormont's pretty similar in the books. Um, I, I really think they do a good job of translating it. Yeah, I know he looks a little different. You know, he's designed to be a little different, and his story's obviously going to go different ways. And yeah, you know, what is it, book two or three? My mind is a little, uh, a little confused on that. I can't remember that. Book two or three, he, he kisses Danny. Jorah, back off a little bit. But that's book Jorah. Show Jorah just hit a chord, struck a chord with me, moved me, inspired me, comforted me, and also provided valuable lessons to me. Sir Jorah Mormont, of course, has the reputation, the name, uh, Sir Friendzone. You know, I get it. I get it. Uh, the term Friendzone, uh, the meaning, the reception of that term and the word has, has definitely changed over, over the years, understandably so. But I, I am a guy that identifies with at least one view of what that word is. Uh, Jorah represents both the good and bad parts of what that word can mean. Um, where your emotions are, 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 your emotions swirl up with your desires and your desires suddenly get placed before, uh, the needs and wants and desires of, of, uh, the person of interest in your life, uh, man or woman. Um, and it gets confusing. It gets painful and sometimes just downright wrong. Uh, that term friend zone has become a, a, a more nuanced or need of more nuance, I should say. But I am someone who identifies with that. Not now. I'll say this right here, right now. Those who, who listen to not just me here, but on other podcasts, I am in a wonderful, happy, three-year-long relationship. A lot changed. But a lot changed because of lessons I learned and things I applied just in life overall. But yeah, seeing myself reflected in Sir Jorah Mormont. This is how deep the character does move me. This is how important the character is to me. It is very easy to just write off or just look at the character of Sir Jorah Mormont as a guy stuck in friend zone. A guy who falls in love with a beautiful young woman who's very much interested in him and very much wants him around her life as a supportive friend, as a confidant, as a mentor, as a guide. And, quote, nothing more. But to be fair, that's quite a lot. She doesn't owe him anything other than that. She doesn't need to give any of her heart to him if she doesn't want to. Daenerys Targaryen, like many out there, particularly women, 
you get to make that choice. That is your choice to make. And Sir Jorah Mormont and the Knights of the World would do well to respect those choices. But, but, and this is where I think some of the nuance needs to come in. What do you do when you have those feelings? What do you do when it's swirling around your heart and your desire is there and you acknowledge that the desire is not shared? What do you do? Do you flip the table and run away? Do you stick it out? Not just uh, suffering, swallowing an emotional hand grenade for yourself, um, but trying to learn and grow from it and seeing, hey, maybe I can put this aside and still focus on the connection that's still here, the other parts of the connection. There's a lot of complicated issues there, of course, in life, and I, I failed at it many times. I've done it all. I flipped the tail, a table and run, hurting people in the process. I've tried to stick around and hurt people in the process. I have been completely hurt in the process. What do you do when you look across the table or across the ship or up at a dragon and see someone that you love that you know you can't have? What do you do with that pain? That's all there with the character of Sir Jorah Mormont. And that was there in my life many times over. Many times. So naturally, when the show starts and I see what's going on, especially by the start of season two, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm in on this guy. This is my guy. This is my guy. Friend zone indeed. How painful. How sorry. I want him to, 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 to win her heart, you know? That was season one, season two. But... Like I said, it'd be easy to stop there. It'd be easy to look at Jorah Mormont as nothing more than that. And that's a lot. But Jorah Mormont, to me, represents someone who is a tremendously good-hearted person, a, a very well-intentioned person, a very accomplished person, someone who does deserve respect, but over the course of his life, like any other person, he'll make some mistakes. He'll do some things wrong. Sir Jorah Mormont was banished from Westeros, from Ned Stark, which, by the way, is one of the first times uh, when in, in the show or the story or the book, wherever, where you're like, wait a minute, I like this Jorah guy. I like that Ned guy. It's kind of like how I talk about the confusion on how to kind of receive Robert Baratheon. He's the king. We're supposed to like him. He's friends with Ned. We like Ned. Well, here comes Jorah. He's over in Essos. If, if, if you're not familiar with the story, again, book or show first doesn't matter. You got this other world. Oh, he was a knight over there in Westeros. That's cool. And then when you, when you find out at one point, hey, I did something wrong. And he stand, he's right there because this is who Jorah is. And I'm like this too. When I'm really, really, I did wrong. I'm going to take that leather strap and I'm going to strike my own back. That's me. I do that a lot. I have done wrong. I will go now. I deserve this punishment. It's the first time I'm like, oh, beyond just the friend zone BS, that's, that's the first time I look at Jorah and go, I see who you are and I connect with it. But it's interesting from the story standpoint because, wow, he's, he was banished by Ned. So does that mean Jorah's done wrong? Is he, is he a bad person? What's going on? It's one of the first big kind of confusion points. Wonderful, complicated confusion points for the World of Ice and Fire story, the Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, whatever you want to look at. You're like, who do I root for? We're so used to rooting for characters in some of these traditional stories. And Game of Thrones, this is one of the reasons, once it exploded out across the world via HBO, that it, it, it changed the way 
There's other shows that are in this too, don't get me wrong, but it changed the way we kind of want to consume some of the other stories. And the simple battles of good and evil sometimes don't scratch our itch completely. But as the story goes on, the pain in Sir Jorah's eyes, his actions, and as you watch him become more and more loyal, connected, maybe even at times obsessed with Daenerys Targaryen, you understand, hey, you know, look at her. Sure, great, the Dragon Queen, who wouldn't be, right? But again, it goes beyond that. For me, I started to see a character that cannot forgive himself. A character that cannot see the path forward because it's so wrapped up in his own pain. It's so wrapped up in his, I deserved what I got because of what I did. And again, by the laws of the land, the character of Sir Jorah Mormont did do some bad things. Got involved in the slave trade. Nope, not good. Not good. Let down his family. Let down down himself. And so I'm also equally as as interested at times. uh, Jorah's more my favorite character in that regard. But Gior Mormon up at the uh, Night's Watch, he just... There's something so interesting about that Mormon family. Very stoic, very grumpy at times, right? But as it plays out, and when he when he when he when he gives uh, gives Longclaw to uh, to John and and talks about Jorah, and again, season one, if you if you you know, you're still sometimes putting all the names together, putting tracing the lines, and so when Jor Mormont, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, is talking about his son, I think by then you get it. But when he hands over the sword and says, at least he had the decency to leave it, I that always stood with me. That always stuck with my heart, uh, this idea of Jorah. Yeah, he did bad. My son did bad. Bad. At least he had the decency to leave the sword. Because, well, he did. Jorah didn't grab his family sword, grab his shield, grab his gear, cuss at Ned, curse him, a pox on you, Ned, and stamp out of Essos and vow to return with vengeance. I can almost imagine that moment. Jor, uh, Jorah Mormont laying down the sword before Gior or uh, anyone else of the Mormont clan and saying, I don't deserve this. I deserve to go. And I think we've all been there and I've been there too and I've done things where uh, I wouldn't say I needed to be banished from the land, but I've done things in my life fallen short of the standards I wanted to do or I want to have. Or that I put there in my life, or or gotten my cutting my heart, push my heart down a path where I only feel comfortable in my own pain, and say a lot of, "Well, I used to do this, I used to do that." Why did you stop? I'm I I'm not good at it. I don't deserve it. Ah. I'm not as good as I should be, and I never will be. And so I wander off in pain. I banish myself to Essos. I've been emotionally in Essos for a large, large portion of my life. And it was only about three or four years ago that I decided it's time 
to forgive myself and work my say work my way back to the mainland. I didn't have a kingly pardon and I didn't uh, spy on a woman I love, but you know, that's the story of Jorah Mormont. He sees Daenerys Targaryen. Yes, he probably sees her as more. He did love her. I love that moment. Love that moment in season six. So powerful. Every time she banishes him away, it's painful. Every time she's, you know, doesn't quite forgive him. I love that he stands and takes it. That's another thing about Jorah I love. He'll stand and take it. Again, he did wrong. He did wrong. I don't know if... If he had forgave, forgiven himself early on, would he have spied on Danny? I don't know. He did want to go back. He does want to feel like he's okay again, feel like he's whole, but that pain, that haunted pain that he carries with him is, is his own haunting. He's haunting himself. He lets it go. If we let it go, we let that pain go. Give it up. Don't hold the sword to yourself. Don't hold yourself to the flames. Life would be better. And I don't know if Jorah ever, ever forgives himself. I think he looks at Danny as if I can do right here. And I do believe that's why show Jorah is a little more my favorite than book Jorah, specifically about that kiss. Um, number one with Danny's age in the books, it's, it's a little awkward, but hey, it's a story, it's the land, it's the world. But on the show, I, I'm glad that there isn't that moment that he doesn't. Uh, have an awkward kiss or worse forced kiss with Danny and all that. He, he always, Jorah in the show, Ian Glenn plays it as he's always going to hold himself back. Yes, he probably knows he loves her. She, he he kind of hints pretty strongly that Danny reminds him in a lot of ways of, of his of his wife, a wife that left him because he couldn't afford to support her. And that led him to the decision. And there you go. Jorah goes down that path. So I think he sees in Danny, if I can do right by her, I couldn't do right about the other woman in my life. If I could do right by her, all will be forgiven. All will be forgiven. And that leads him to make more mistakes. That leads him to uh, bad things happening to him like the grayscale. Again, different from show to book. Curious to see where Jorah plays out in the books. But man, do I love the path in the show. It's like, of course he'd get that. It's almost like the pain inside him is now a ticking time bomb. The pain inside him is working its way out, almost literally. He's at the mercy of this disease now, but he's at the mercy of just his own self-hatred. And again, the big theme, the inability to forgive himself. But if he gets it right with Danny, if he gets it right with Danny, it's all right. It's all right. Him getting healed is one of the things in the show that does happen fast for me. But I love I love how it plays out. I love Samuel Tarley getting involved. I love I love Sam doing it because of Gior Mormont. I think it's really powerful. And, you know, how many more scenes did you want to see of Jorah nearly dying in a cell or, you know, Prior to getting to the Citadel, do you want to see him just, you know, moping about the land, almost a rock zombie? Hey, I wouldn't have wanted to watch that. We get it. He's there. He's bad. He's going. He's saved. He's saved by Sam. But really, in a weird way, I th- I, I see Zor, uh, Zor, uh, Zor, 
thinking of Zori Blisso from Star Wars. <laughs> the weird way, I think Jorah was saved by his father. Jor Mormont's acts of mentorship and hard kindness and literal life-saving words to Sam is a butterfly effect that caused Sam in this moment to turn it back on Jorah. He needed that. He needed that external forgiveness in a way. So what happens? It happens and he's back and he returns. And I thought he was going to go, man. I thought when they sent that uh, snow team six north of the wall, uh, you know, I remember talking with Michelle Boyd. She was like, he's going to die and he's going to be a zombie and he's going to go back and Danny's going to have to kill him or something like, wow, why would you do that to me? The pain, the pain, the pain, the pain. But it's better than that. The death of Sir Jorah Mormont had me in tears because of my investment with this character over the course of eight seasons of television and what, nine years of life. What started as a character of, yeah, man, he's in the friend zone. He just wants to kiss that dragon lady has turned into a lesson in how you should treat yourself. A lesson in how you should look at your past transgressions and mistakes and how you should look at the road ahead. It's a tough land. He would have died many, many other ways. Who knows? Who knows? He never really forgave himself, I think, until that final moment. He never did. But he, he got it. He stood next to Danny. Flames and smoke around them. She was in need. Everything in the latter part of his life was about that moment. It built to that moment. All the pain he felt, all the lack of purpose, all the sins he committed. I think in his mind and his heart finally were washed away from there. I don't think it was right, and that's part of the lesson. I think you should forgive yourself and not need to put yourself in this situation. You can see where it leads. But he was there. He served the purpose that he had placed in his mind. Fighting off... Dothraki whites, by the way. Oh, painful. Men he led and fought with and bled with and got to know. Breaking through. I think it's a weird, I think it's a, just a sometimes forgotten testament to how good Jorah is that he could break through the wall that is around the Dothraki people and be accepted to a certain point of view. And then, you know, really be accepted by Khal Drogo because of what he did. Even though what he did, saving Danny in season seven, uh, season one from the poison, was his own doing. Again, the emotional swirls in Jorah's heart. I love the moment. His death was perfect to me. And I'm someone who knew probably from the first episode, I like this guy. Oh, he's going to die. And it's going to hurt in some way. And all along the way, I thought this might be it. Could this be it? I remember thinking when I saw the titles for was it season four, they put up the title, the bear, the maiden fair. And I, and again, I hadn't, I didn't know the books as well. Then it was, it was going into season four that I finally caught up with all the books and and the title came out. So I, I I would not have thought about uh, the Brienne and Jamie stuff. And I saw the title and I went, Oh no. And I told one of my friends, I go, this is probably it, right? The bear, Jorah, Jorah Mormont, bear Island. Mormont clan, House Mormont, the bear, he's going to die. The bear, the man, he's going to die. My friend knew. She knew. She didn't say anything. She let me experience it on my own. 
And I remember, I had to, oh, oh gosh, it's it's about the bear pit. It's about Brian and Jamie. Oh, okay, great. It's about the song. Whew, Jorah's good. Jorah's good. Um, but as this moment started to happen, the moment he shows up to stand side by side with Danny, I knew this was it. This is the moment. And to finally see the character pain for so long, haunted, fighting, staying alive, probably dead long before he hit the floor. I think, you know, again, not literally, but just kind of physically on his way out. The the fatal blows had been received already, but he willed himself to stay alive, not just for what he felt for her, for the love he had for Daenerys Targaryen, but because of the purpose that he made her in his life. He's far beyond just stuck in the friend zone. He's far beyond that. Loyal, dedicated, long-suffering. And in the end, I think as he looked up at her, it's played so beautifully. In the end, he was able to forgive himself because he completed that purpose, completed that mission. I shall protect her. And then he goes, yep, we know what happens to her. Yep, we know. He couldn't be there in the end. And what would he have done to Jon Snow? And what would he have done to prevent Jon Snow to do that? But I think that's part of Danny's story. When those around her fall away. I still look at the death of Barristan Selmy as one of the key deaths again in the show. Jorah might have been, might have been the last that could have pulled her back. He didn't always succeed in that, and they always sometimes fought, but, you know, he'd reached her before. Reached her Marine. And not for nothing, the moment with Dario and Jorah in the stairwell, where Dario's basically like, ha ha, hey, guess what I just did, sport? Oh, Dario wanted to reach to the screen and punch him. But Danny heeds his advice then, gives him a little win. I love that stuff. I love the final moments of Sir Jorah Mormon. That story, that arc was complete there, and he finally found the peace. So, thank you, Funko Pop. It's not often I'm going to thank a toy company. But as I drove home with that nice little set and the nice little packaging that I do love, I drove home, I, I really thought to myself, why do I love this moment? Why did I... Love this character. A few years ago, I really made it a point to only look forward, learn from the past, study the past, acknowledge your mistakes, but heal, work on healing, work on forgiving yourself for any of your perceived transgressions, the transgressions against yourself, one of the things. And my life changed after that. Oh, it's always never going to be perfect, always going to be a challenge. And who knows? But I got that a lot from the character of Sir Jorah Mormont. He went from just that guy who wanted a smooch to a guy whose entire purpose was wrapped up in keeping someone else safe. And that was the only way he could be healed. So, I did something I rarely, rarely do. 
took the toy out of the box. I threw the box away. I ripped it up, threw it away. We don't need to be beholden to the packaging or to the idea of I can't take it out. No, it's out. It's front and center in my living room right now. When I'm riding, relaxing, eating, I stare at it right now. A reminder of the importance of self-forgiveness, a reminder of my own past, and a reminder of a character that absolutely moved me. That grabbed me with what was going on on the surface and helped change me because of what was present beneath it. Jorah, wish it could have been a little different. Could have ended better. But now, thanks to Funko Pop, I'll always remember you. The other side of this break, Ruminations returns. Ruminations from the realm. Your questions. It's Casterly Talk, the 50th episode. We'll see you after this. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. and welcome back to Ruminations from the Realm here on Casterly Talk. Today I want to bring up something that's more of a theory or an idea rather than any sort of fact, but bear with me. Today's thought comes from Fire and Blood. Specifically, in the chapter titled Jaehaerys and Alisande, Their Triumphant Tragedies. When speaking of the whereabouts of Arya Targaryen and Beleriand the Black Dread toward the end of 54 AC, Septon Barth mentions that dragons are not vagabond by nature, often finding caves, ruined castles, or mountaintops to nest in and on, going out to hunt and then returning. Now, we know that Beleriand the Black Dread created a lair on Dragonstone after the death of Magor the Cruel, so Septon Bar's interesting little tidbit isn't terribly applicable to the situation being discussed in that chapter, but it does provide an interesting implication for the show as we know it now. So, what if Drogon, having never before had one to periodically return to, went off to create a nest in season four, and upon Danny's death, flew back to said nest. Now, I know many people have theorized about this topic, so if that's not interesting enough of a hook for you, allow me to don my tinfoil hat here and spin the yarn in a bit of a different way. The Targaryens and their riders are bonded, linked in a sense if you want to think of it that way. So what if that bond or link goes deeper than we know? John and Danny were romantically involved at the time of Viserion's death. And I don't think anybody can really argue that. Afterward, that obviously meant that Rhaegal and Drogon would have spent nearly all their time together alone. Now, we all know who Rhaegal and Drogon are bonded with, or linked to, I'm doing air quotes with my hands. But what if that bond transcended John and Danny, and progressed to their two dragons? Now, let me put on my giant flying reptile biology hat for a minute here. Typically, dragons are asexual hermaphrodites in fantasy settings. 
meaning that they need not mate to reproduce and have no clearly defined male or female traits. Septon Barth, the same man I mentioned at the beginning of this completely errant thought, uh, even put forward that notion at some point. Yet it's never been made fact, and most every dragon in the history of the known world has been referred to as either he or she at some point in their lives, giving rise to my thought that they may be fluid when it comes to gender, but maybe they aren't entirely asexual, meaning that although they aren't clearly male or female, they may still need to mate or fertilize any laid eggs in order to reproduce. Again, just a thought, nothing to really substantiate this, just going off of the fact that they are referred to with male and female pronouns. We also know, in our world anyways, that most animals have reproductive instincts that kick in when their population becomes threatened. So, all of that was a preamble to enable me to pose the following thought to you. When John and Danny fell in love, then lost Viserion, what if Rhaegal and Drogon knew that they needed to reproduce to fill that void? And did. Then, after the death of Rhaegal and later Daenerys, Drogon may have had only one instinct left, to return to the nest that he had created in season four in order to mourn his mother and protect his own hatchlings, possibly a clutch that was not yet laid, the last dragons, living out their years in exile just the same as the last Targaryen would north of the Wall. With no more dragon riders in the known world, Drogon's hatchlings would have been the first dragons in many, many centuries to be born into a completely natural life. Not to be used as machines of war, but to live freely and peacefully as wild animals are meant to. Or maybe all of this is way off base and dragon eggs are just meant to be laid at random and fertilized by fire, just as Danny inadvertently did at the beginning of this story. So, as you can see, this is far more of a theory than any sort of fact-based thought, but it was something I couldn't shake after reading that line from Septon Barth. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Rissling. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this uh, wild theory posed here. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Ruminations from the Realm. Here, right here, on Casterly Talk. Oh, there you go. That's why we have Thomas around these parts. So happy we can uh, he can uh, come back and do that. Uh, he's been moving and doing a lot of things in life, and so his his uh, great insight, his great thoughts, and and. Uh, just kind of the way he looks at, at, at Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire is definitely needed around these parts. And I love this idea. I, I didn't know that I needed some sort of peace for Drogon, uh, Rhaegal, uh, even Viserion and Death, and, and, and the idea of them finding peace in some offland. The, the idea of Drogon taking Danny to a cave he may have, you know, created and settled and and and, and uh, put out there in the lands back in season four or five like that wow that stuck that kind of stuff man i love i love we can crawl in crawl into these words uh, that are out there in the show or in the books and kind of form your own own theories and as always we don't hold to our own theories just in case the answers do come and it doesn't jive with that but i think a lot of times when you really tune into a show or story like this or, or a movie series like star Wars or, um, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, any, 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 any other big franchise where there's these big modern myths, when you really connect with what the creators are trying to do and really can read through the lines and, and, and find the emotional threads and then string them out in certain directions, it, it becomes less of just headcanon predictions or thoughts. And sometimes it, it takes you down a path that seems right, whether right or, or wrong in terms of just a fact where the Drogon took Danny out there. And I know, I know, I know there's some, some interviews and sometimes some, some commentary and, and, and the answers sometimes are out there. This isn't about that. This is about 
uh, what makes some sort of sense emotionally. I love that we don't get those answers in the show. That's that's something, you know, <laughs> of the drug on isn't like, ah, cool. Uh, sorry, John. Uh, nice to know you, John. Uh, sorry for everything going wrong. Uh, I'm going to take her back to, um, uh, you know, Valeria. And I know Brand kind of gives some t- hints uh, at where uh, a dragon might be uh, might be spotted, hard to miss in that lamb. But I love what uh, Thomas is saying here. And the idea that, hey, yeah, maybe the dragons know that there's a deeper connection. The force might be at work here. And the idea, the idea that in this land, in this world, as time marches on and things change, and the first car comes to Westeros. I'm waiting for that story now. Um I love the idea that maybe somewhere in some far-off land, untouched by the people of this world, it could be maybe some dragons in peace. I like that idea. They are used as, as weapons of war. We talked about that last week. Uh, Billy calling in about, you know, what if, what if House of the, the Dragon kind of deals with the Small folk of King's Landing, of this land, dealing with the idea that these dragons are sometimes used as these big nuclear weapons that just destroy. And no, of course they'd have some anger towards them. Of course they try to charge the the uh, the, the dragon uh, lairs, the, the stables there at the, drag, at the dragon pit and, and kill these dragons. Of course they would. But the dragons don't necessarily deserve that. I think dragons have some thought in what they do. Clearly, talk to Drogon at the end there. But they are being ridden. They are being used. They are weapons of war indeed. So this idea that Drogon could eventually find some kind of peace with his mother gone, burying her some way. Um, and that, yeah, there's some dragon eggs out there and some new dragon hatchlings that could live their life not having to fight in the wars of every other house in the land. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. All right. We got a couple more uh, calls this week. Got some new calls coming on in here. And let's uh, pot that board up and let's go into uh, what we got here. I am flying blind. I love this. I record this show live to tape. Uh, so uh, sometimes, you know, I'm going to play a call here. Who knows where it goes? But I trust this caller here. It's our friend Scribbler. Hey, Ken, this is Jeff Saunders, a.k.a. Scribs, and I've got kind of a a weird question for you guys. Um, All the talk over the last few weeks about what-ifs has kind of got my wheels spinning, and, uh, you know, one of the things that the showrunners did, I think, pretty well was they carried over a lot of the story elements from the books and adapted those to different characters on the show. And this got me thinking uh, if there are any uh, other, you know, story beats from the novels that we could maybe give to different characters on the show. Uh, my, my, my example is uh, the Lady Stoneheart, but instead of her being uh, Catelyn, have her be Talissa Stark. Uh, I think that would have been a neat transition since, uh, you know, Lady Stark was such a sweet, innocent girl. And then to have her become, you know, uh, a very mean character, very vengeful. But uh, anyway, would love to hear your thoughts on that and and your uh, thoughts on other story elements. Thanks. Thanks, Scribs. Uh, I like this. I, I, I don't want to say I like this idea. I mean, yeah, Talisa Stark. Oof. Yeah. No, not done right in the world. A great, uh, a, a great tragic 
hard to watch moment in the show, memorable for a good reason. But uh, yeah, you know that poor that poor character, that poor girl, man. So coming back and yeah, being sweet and coming some sort of zombified vengeance. I can get behind that there. Uh, I you know I I do sometimes you know the fact the show didn't use Lady Stoneheart doesn't always sit well with me. I just I get it. I actually really do get it from a story standpoint. And that's what you, you, you gotta, when you're telling a story in this kind of medium, you just gotta go to the heart of it. You gotta go to the themes. You gotta go to those emotional themes. That's what works. I, 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 I can't get into what I'm working on right now, but I'm working on a, on a pretty cool project right now. And it's in the, it's in the note phase. I'm getting a lot of notes from other people about it is, is, is the job. And it is a, a subject matter that I'm tremendously familiar with. Uh, not Star Wars, not Game of Thrones, something else. I'm tremendously familiar with not just the overall story, but uh, the people in the story, what happened, what the choices they made. And it's real life stuff, so I know. And we are already in a point, and we're just one and two episodes in out of a five-episode arc that we're writing this. We are cutting stuff out that I'm like, ooh, 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 but, 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 but that's really cool stuff. And we have to sit and go, well, you know, what is the story we are trying to tell here? Some of these things, as cool as they are, as important as they are, don't matter to this one emotional theme, this this through line that we're telling here. This is why I think Benioff and Weiss succeeded from episode one, season one, to episode six, season eight. Succeeded all the way through, missteps along the way, here and there, that's going to happen because you're making your choices. They held to a line, a line they knew they needed to get to, a driving line, a through line, an emotional um, thesis statement, and, and many follow-ups, and something like Lady Stoneheart had to be cut. So I do, I do regret it, but uh, then it goes, because I, I just wanted to see it more than anything. But if you transfer it in, in other ways, because they do do that very well. I talked about Jorah Mormont in segment one. You know, him getting the grayscale, that happens to another character in the books, a story we haven't fully seen play out. But it kind of works because that character's kind of in the same situation in a way, I think, emotionally. So it kind of works to transfer it over. So Talisa Stark doing that. As far as my particular answer, I I, I don't I, – I'm, for whatever reason, being drawn to Mance Raider. Love Mance on the show. In the moments, we don't get a lot of moments with him. Far too few moments with Mance Raider in the show. But what, when they do, even just tiny little throwaway. When, when the last time he and Tormund are around each other, all right, we'll meet here. How will I know you're here? I'm going to light the biggest fire the North has ever seen. Karen Hines just nails just that one read. He could have been in one scene in the tent in the beginning, and it would have worked. He would have been one of my favorite characters. I've talked often here, Mag and Gren, Gren and Mag, like all that guy. He's just so good. So good. And Book Mance is just as good, but in other ways. And obviously more robust. Obviously bigger things going on in his story. But there's parts of him. Uh, Mance the musician, the harp player, uh, which is very similar in a lot of ways to Rhaegar. Mance being curious, going over the wall and, and heading to Winterfell to... To be there when Robert Baratheon shows up, just kind of watching uh, him going in with the Spearwives to uh, kind of be the ghost of Winterfell when Ramsay and everyone's in there, you know. And a lot of this, we haven't seen the end of it ever there. 
I don't necessarily. I, I, I miss again. I miss when 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 Mance goes. I did not believe it, and I, just like when Stannis dies, and I had to kind of convince myself it didn't happen for a while. I, you didn't see it. Yeah, when Mance goes, I was in a hotel room in Vegas with two of my friends, not book uh, readers, but I knew. And I was like, oh, don't worry. Oh, he is not that. He is not that. Uh, uh, rattle shirt, uh, Lord of Bones. Like, don't, don't worry. There's some things coming. Like, I don't want to tell you. There's something. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's dead. He's dead. So, again, it wasn't that those things in the books, includes Lady Stoneheart, aren't important. They are important to the story George R. R. Martin's telling, but to the emotional thesis statements, many of them in the show, you know, wasn't, again, not that it couldn't have been important. This it wasn't the story they were telling. So I had, to let, I had to let Mance go. I had to let Mance go. But I would have liked to have seen some of those things. I, so I don't know. When Ramsey takes Winterfell, does someone else sneak in with some spear wefts? Is it Tormund? It sneaks in under disguise as a harp player and causes some problems. It's, could someone else have said to Jon Snow? Again, not necessarily Tormund. It could have been someone else. didn't have to be a, 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 someone from the Free Folk. But someone else like, oh, you know, I was there in Winterfell when Robert showed up. I wanted to see the king. You know, Davos or something like that. I, I, it would have been interesting to me. There's a lot in Mance's story, Mance's story that I, I, I can't wait to read more on, but that the show could have used another way if they saw, if they saw fit. So, great question, Scribs. I love uh, and there. I, without listening before, I got to think on my feet. Woo! All right, we got to do that. All right, we got a call here from our friend Eric Monroe. Hey, Cannon Cashler Talk. So I just finished season five of my rewatch of Game of Thrones, and I definitely agree with what Rachel, I believe it was Rachel, once coined it, the most uneven season. I think it starts off great. The season five premiere is my favorite season premiere, not counting the pilot. I think Hard Home, um, The Dance of Dragons, and Mother's Mercy are all incredibly good episodes. But I think it does stumble a little bit in the middle section, starting with the killing of Sir Barris and Selmy. I loved Whitebeard, and it focuses heavily on Dorian in the middle and even Arya with the House of Black and White which wasn't my favorite part of the show. I much preferred her Adventures with the Hound and her stuff with Tywin and then of course the whole Sansa wedding night fiasco but Stannis is featured very heavily in the season which if you're a Stannis fan like me I did like. I also think this season is the darkest season of the eight. So what do you think about the unevenness of season five? All right, we got the wars to come, the House of Black and White, High Sparrow, Sons of the Harpy, Kill the Boy, which is a great episode, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken, which is, I think, by ratings, the uh, least popular episode of Game of Thrones, The Gift, Hard Home, which, you know, enough great things can't be said about that episode, The Dance of Dragons, and Mother's Mercy. Uneven, yeah, uh, here's why I think it might be uneven. There's so much going on. There's so much going on. Everything I just talked about, the creators, the writers, the Dave Hills, the Brian Cogmans, uh, Benny F. and Weiss, of course. And, and they get a lot of writing credit in season five, Benny F. and Weiss. Um, and hey, sling, air, sling some arrows at them if you, if you think they messed up. But there's so much going on. And it isn't just that they moved, quote, beyond the books. We know they, they moved beyond the books as uh, way earlier than anyone wants to kind of acknowledge because that's just kind of what was happening. Um, again, you got to find the story you're telling. I think a lot's still going on in season five. Just reading the titles, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right, season five, The High Sparrow. 
Because that, that's part of Cersei's storyline. That's part of what she's got to go. All right, Danny's over there trying to rule Marine, Sons of the Harpy. Meanwhile, Jorah, Tyrion, they're all going, going on. And then you got the aftermath of, of Tyrion uh, killing his father. I mean, across uh, the land over there, starting out in Pentos and, and going uh, on his mission. Uh, Ramsey's rising in power. You got to squeeze Sansa's uh, stuff in there. And then it wasn't necessarily handled the best. And so that causes, you know, a lot is going on. And then, oh, yeah, the threat from the north. We got Jon Snow. And because the show, because the books, because the books just explode after book one. I mean, book one, season one, book one is probably the most one-for-one translation uh, adaptation there is, I think. Again, changes are starting right away. But, yeah, generally, if you read book one, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this episode, oh, yeah, this episode. That's what, the, you know, it's good. It, it really starts to change drastically in season two. So I think sometimes to me, I understand that. I think, um, I think you, you might have run out of real estate to take the time to tell those stories. And like Dorn, yeah, Dorn, Dorn is there. You, you set up, you're coming out of season four. Red Viper, you want revenge, you're invested in that character, and I, I'm one of those too. I would tell my friend Paul, man, hey, hey, Sand Snakes are coming, man. Don't worry. Don't worry. We got some cool stuff coming. Hey, it didn't play well. It didn't play well. There's just so much going on. There's only so much real estate. And so there's things you love. Hard home. Uh, Mother's Mercy, the moments with Cersei all through that. Cersei, Cersei in prison, and, and, and Cersei broken down is some of the best Cersei on the show, just in terms of a, of a character study. Because, again, I always say, you know, sometimes the desire to see the characters you love and you want them to come through or you want them to have the big moments, and sometimes that's not the story. And, and sometimes you have to learn from the, the characters' mistakes or learn from their falls or, or just kind of watch them go through horrible things. And, and Cersei Lannister, a villain, she's a heel. You're, you're not supposed to like Cersei a lot, but at the same time, I think you're supposed to love everything about her and have a lot of empathy for her. I really think that's why that's why season five starts with Maggie the Frog, Jodie May, last Mohicans, now in Witcher, uh, playing Maggie the Frog. I think that's a, a very telling starting point. Uh, you get Cersei, who's not a, you know, I wouldn't say Cersei's a nice girl. She's not, the, she's a little snarky, little, little, uh, a little uppity, um, but she's already affected by then. She already has this, and then to have that hung over her, to see how that prophecy is driving her a lot, I think, you know, that's big. And you could have spent so much more time on that. That's why the Valonqar, uh doesn't, they cut it out of the show. Again, emotional through lines. What do you need? Do you need a prophecy over her head that a brother is going to kill her? Yes, because we already get in the show, we already get she doesn't like Tyrion. She has some problems with Tyrion, but it's still uh, his sister, and her, he's her brother. Uh, the, you get the stuff with Jamie, J- Jamie. Did you need the added, like, I think one of you is going to kill you? I would have liked it. I don't know if you need it. So you have to concentrate on what really matters to this character as presented in the show. And what matters is she's been told all these things, but she's also been told, yeah, uh, they're going to die. And, and, and you might be, you're going to be replaced. And now it starts to happen. Now it starts to happen. That's driving Cersei. So that's powerful stuff. But then, as much as I love Jonathan Price, you know, a lot of the moments of High Sparrow, they're very slow. I think he's a great character. Jonathan Price is an amazing performer. Yeah, he's one of the two popes. Um, but it's slower stuff. It's different stuff, and it drags you down a bit. And it is definitely per- perhaps the darkest season. 
I mean, there's a lot of dark <laughs> in Game of Thrones, but consistently, uh, Sansa stuff, uh, just even setting aside uh, some of the controversies around that that episode in that moment. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of dark things going on. But Sansa's got to overcome that stuff too. Um, stuff with Roos, I mean, Roos and Ramsey, uh, there's a lot going on. So I think that kind of creates some of the feelings of, of an uneasy season. And hey, that's what you got to do. Because again, George R. R. Martin, God bless him and his uh, life in New Mexico. Wish him nothing but good health and hope and finish the damn books, George. He writes himself in the corners. He writes himself off the path. He he can do that. And now he's going to do it again and maybe change the ending in the process and say, this is my plan all along. I don't know. I'm not rooting against George, by the way. I love George R.R. R. Martin. I'm just saying he gets to do that because he's working in a different medium. The show didn't. So sometimes it's going to suffer. Final thought for the day. Final question. And we have got a new caller. Love it. Hey, Ken. Addie here. First time caller, long time listener. Uh, been watching my rewatch of Game of Thrones only in season one, episode seven. You win or you die. Robert's dead. Uh, Ned knows that the children of uh, Robert and Cersei are actually the children of Jamie and Cersei, etc. Baelish has come to his office and has basically presented to him we're just going to let all that go and Joffrey will become king and if Joffrey becomes a problem, we'll take care of him later. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think would have happened if Ned had gone along with what Baelish suggested and not gone to Stannis, not gone to war with the Lannisters, made peace with the Lannisters instead. Um, what do you think would have happened? Love the show. Love everything you're doing. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Addy with a big win. Addy with a big call here. And I believe uh, Addy did treat, uh, tweet me and say, hey, uh, as promised, uh, using the Anchor app to put in a call, tremendously easy. Addy, that's a that's a first time call and a and a home run on your first pitch in the big leagues, man. That is that is some great stuff here because we deal with the the what ifs a lot here on Casterly Talk, and I, I've talked a lot about the what if of if Ned Stark had continued to pack his bags and not lish, listen to Baelish to even stick around and just ran up north. Uh, I, I'd be I'm interested. I'm still that's a what if that haunts me sometimes because I'm such a fan of Ned. So. I wish I had a team of my team of experts here with me because this is this is a big one. I think this one we might be discussing again soon. If you're you're listening, you want to call in and talk about Thomas's theory, um, season five. Uh, you want to talk about uh, what Addie's uh, proposed here. Always do that. Castle Talk is an ongoing conversation with me and you, um, Rachel, Lon, and Andres will be here when they can, when time allows, when studio time allows. Uh, House of the Dragon. Two years ahead of schedule in my mind, but we'll we'll be running strong and reviewing the shows. Uh, but this is the show is very much a conversation between you and me, and sometimes you and you and you and you. So let's keep this one going because I don't know if I have the perfect answer, the perfect thought right now. But I think about that too. Ned's so stubborn to a fault. We hear that a lot. We say that a lot, and and, and he did make a lot of mistakes. And and some of those mistakes still are felt through the rest of the show. I, I love when Sansa and Arya talk about how he 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 you know he did good job, good job raising him, but also kind of sheltered them from the world a little bit too much. And I don't think anyone's going to fault Ned for that. 
but it's there. That's a mistake, and that's kind of how life works. Ned couldn't get out of his own honorable way. And his his preconceived notions, correct about Baelish, would, would keep him from doing uh, probably anything that seemed too shifty. He chooses the path of truth, the path of what I believe is right, the, the righteous direction forward because that's what we do. That's what we should seek to do as humans, right? He's not going to play the game. It cost him. But if he did, if he did, I think it just, and again, what I love about these what ifs, we don't have to worry about the plot that we know is coming down the line. We don't have to worry about the War of Five Kings. I, I think the War of Five Kings doesn't happen, at least right away. I think all the plans are in motion, Targaryen restoration plans, the Dornish plan, little finger plans, all the plans are still happening. Just there's a little more time. And there might have been more time for Ned to get enough people behind him. I'm not talking just about City Watch versus, uh, you know, um, Kingsguard, anything like that. I'm just, he, he would have maybe been able to keep his head on a swivel, protect himself, watch himself, maybe get Sansa, Sansa and Arya out of there. Would have sent them off right away. Things are afoot. Get home. Um, again, war. It, it, Tyrion's been held hostage, and, and there's there's not a lot of great things going on, right? Um, but if he had just played the game, he'd be alive. And Ned alive is valuable to me. Ned alive with the people who do respect him. You know, does he? I mean, I'm taking, I'm playing. You know, some of the, some of the things that are emotion are emotion, but does does he stop Stannis from? having some claim to to the throne again if he doesn't go to stannis and say hey guess what this the throne's yours but at some point stannis might figure something out or stannis is making a move stannis is off there unhappy he's off there i think it's you know i don't know exactly when melisandre shows up on the shores of dragonstone but she could have been the one to say by the way the throne's yours anyways but if if stannis is making any moves towards the throne maybe ned can can hold him off at bay maybe he he could then find a value in Renly as king. I think it just buys time and it keeps Ned in the game, but it would have been an uncomfortable spot because Ned hates that game. Clearly, clearly. But what does it do to Baelish's plan? I can't get in Baelish's head. I need Andres here for that. I need you out there to call in with ideas about this. What I think Baelish does so well because of what he says. It's a great monologue to use at any kind of audition or just to play. I know a friend who plays it in her car. Baelish's monologue, Chaos is a Ladder. I did not like the episode Chaos is a Ladder, uh, uh, the, that episode, uh, or what, The Climb, excuse me. Uh, I did not like that episode uh, when it first came out. I remember thinking, eh, filler. That word we use a lot, and I use it a lot too. Eh, filler. Uh, Filler in, the, in these type of programs, Mandalorian and everything, there's episodes that are going to be maybe less important, episodes that are setting things up, episodes that are quieter, and the climb is a little quieter. But when you go back and watch it now, the climb's an important episode. And and Baelish's chaos is a ladder theory is one of the more, like I hear it, I'm like, he is right. That's how you want to do things. I'm not suggesting you go around backstabbing and conniving and, and conceiving plans. I, I'm not necessarily saying that's the best way to do life or to get through the business office. But 
but particularly for this land, for this world, I mean, Baelish is, he's right. He's right. And one of the things I love is he's going to adapt. I don't know at this point right now, as I'm talking to some recording, I don't know what Baelish would have done if he got Ned on board. Is his love, affection, and obsession with Catelyn Stark, which is still very much in effect, it's not been transferred onto Sansa quite yet, thankfully, Baelish, you sicko, does he align himself with Ned in any way, shape, or form down the line, work on just, hey, 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 give me some time, and then does he take Ned out? I, I believe in his heart, Baelish should be like, I got to get Ned out of the way. I don't think Catelyn Stark really loves him. I don't for one second believe Baelish actually loves Lyanna Stark. Not Lyanna Stark. Well, maybe Lyanna, uh, uh, Liza Aaron. Excuse me. Uh, a lot of names. <laughs> um, I don't think he, you know, Liza Aaron's all, it's, it's, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good faker, that guy. Um, so, yeah. Eddie, that's a great one. In my heart, I still just want Ned to pack those bags and run. Not run away a coward, run away to fight another day. I don't think Ned could have left and not dealt with what was going on behind uh, behind him, especially with the information he's got. I think Baelish wanted Ned to do it too, because even though he loves chaos, he's got to know that sometimes too much chaos can create problems too. And I'm sure he's got a long-term plan some long-term plans, options, A, Bs, and Cs, and Ds down the road. And I think Ned was throwing a little bit of a hand grenade in some of that. A little bit. Which, again, a testament to the honor of Ned. Not the perfect answer. One more. We'll come back to this discussion. Got Andres Cabrera in here. His love of Baelish brings a great understanding of that character as well. Addy, thanks for the call. Eric. Scribbler, you guys are the best. Thanks to Thomas Rizling. Give him a follow at Thomas Rizling. We call him Sir Thomas. It's all around these parts, but follow him at Thomas Rizling. Love his segments. They'll be back more often. Uh, guests on the way, all those kind of things. And me. I'm going to go stare at my Jorah Mormont, Daenerys Targaryen, Final Moments Funko Pop, shed a tear, and toss one back for my man Jorah. We'll see you next time. This is Casterly Talk. <laughs>